All right, everyone, turn in your Bibles to Exodus 4. Exodus chapter 4. We're finishing up chapter 4 this morning, and then we we're, we're going to have a couple of uh, Christmas sermons, sermons on the first coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus, uh, the next two Sundays. So this is our last time in Exodus for a couple of weeks or so. Um, and even at the end of this passage, we'll already begin to take a look at our Lord's first coming as well. So that's chapter 4 of Exodus, and we are going to be looking at verses 24 to 31 in particular this morning. So Exodus 4, beginning in verse 24. Hear God's word to us this very Lord's Day morning. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time she said bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the desert to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the miraculous signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of, Israel, of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Let's pray together. Father God, we pray that as you speak to us today, through your holy, inerrant, authoritative word, that we would bow down and we would worship you in spirit and in truth through your only Son, your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ. Speak to us, O Lord, for your servants are listening. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let me grab my coffee here. All right, so this morning, as we look at this passage, uh, the question that uh, the question I was thinking of as I was studying for the passage is what goes into the making of the deliverer, the Old Testament deliverer of God's people? You know, how did God prepare his chosen man to be the human vessel through whom, listen to this, whom he would lead his firstborn son, Israel? That's who he, that's how he referred to Israel in the text last week. How he would lead his firstborn son Israel out of Egypt into the promised land in order to worship him. What goes into the training of such a leader? Now, one of the things that hits me over my whole Christian life, to be honest with you, is that when I look at Moses and I see um, how patient he is with God's people, I, I see that he sacrifices himself as we go on to read through Exodus and Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, you see a man with deep humility. You see a man who's willing to give his life for the people of God. And you wonder, wow, what went into the making of such a servant leader? Really? 
I mean, especially as pastors, elders, leaders, deacons, uh, but certainly even as lay ministers in the church, we, we have to look at, you know, how did God raise such a leader up and what did he do in his life to make him uh, more like himself with all the qualities and all the, how he bore the fruit of the Holy Spirit even back in the old covenant time. Well, we've been looking at that answer to that the answer to, the, to these questions the last few Sundays or so, as we've studied Exodus three and four in particular. Now, very brief summary: uh, we've seen that the Lord educated Moses, his servant, in the home of his Hebrew parents. Right? He was trained in the in in the scriptures of the Old Testament. Particularly, um, he had Genesis at this time, even if it was oral. They had the word of the Lord, and so he would be trained up. He would be trained up in the covenant of grace. He would be taught about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We saw that he didn't only have that Hebrew training as a Hebrew, but then as he grew, the, um, as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he was able to have the best of both worlds, as it were, because he had the best training that was available to him in the secular world as well. He was trained in uh, all the Egyptian schools as well. But then we saw in the last couple of weeks that God used something that we don't always appreciate in our lives when he's teaching us different things that he wants us to learn. He used failure. God used failure in the life of Moses. Forty years in the desert, God used to develop character traits of deep humility, of not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought, of patience. And I believe as, it's, as we see in Moses' life as it plays out, he developed compassion in the heart of his servant Moses as well. Um, he had some of that before the 40 years, but I believe God deepened that. We could see that in his life. And then we saw in the text, this is important to see before I just jump right into our text this morning, after uh, patiently addressing all of Moses' excuses as God called him out from within the burning bush, after God um, answered all his objections, what we need to see is Moses did finally submit to God's will and God's word, and he began to make his way to Egypt. We saw that last time. Uh, before making his way to Egypt, we saw last week that there were some final preparations that he had to get in order before he can get on the road. First thing he had to do is he had to go and check with Jethro and, and make sure everything was cool with him, his father-in-law, who was also his employer. He did that, check. He could check that off the list, as we mentioned last week. Um, God comforted him and gave him the knowledge that those who sought his life uh, back in Egypt, they died, that he outlived them. So he didn't have that heavy burden to bear. Check. Off of his mind. What a relief. And then we saw that he, um, God gave him the words of reminder um, so that when he had that big day of confronting Pharaoh, he would have it rehearsed in his mind exactly what the Lord told him to say and what the Lord told him to do. Again, check. But as I ended last week's sermon with, I began to say this, there was one piece of unfinished business that Moses still hadn't taken care of up to this point, and it needed Moses' attention sorely before he could begin his mission that God had called him to engage in in Egypt. As a matter of fact, this last thing that he had to do, if it was not tended to, it would stop Moses' mission, remember I said this last week, dead in its tracks before he could even begin. The mission would have been aborted before he even began to follow the word of the Lord. Now the text tells us in, in, that we started reading this week 
that the Lord met Moses at a lodging when he and his family were making their way to Egypt. So he's on his way. They're taking a, a night of rest, of course. But then the text tells us something that should be, to the reader, incredibly shocking. And it seemingly comes from out of left field. We read in verse 24, the Lord met Moses. And, and I always think of, uh, I thought of this when, we, when I was preparing, you know, walk with me, Lord. You walked with Moses. <laughs> walk with me. <laughs> we don't think of this incident when we say, Lord, walk with me, do we? The way you walk with Moses. But it says that the Lord met him in order, in order to kill him. That's right. You can take the double take. It actually says, the text says, he was about to kill him. Now, we do have to pause a second and ask ourselves, at least I did. Wait a minute. You're telling me the Lord. Now, think about this. The Lord, Yahweh, I am, who invested so much in his servant, Moses. He had him rescued as a child from the murderous decree of the king of Egypt through a little ark, right? Had him uh, taken in by uh, the princess of Egypt. The Lord who trained Moses for such a time as this, as I mentioned earlier. The Lord who patiently, compassionately, and gently answered every single one of Moses' objections and lovingly um, assured him that those who wanted to take his life back in, uh, in Egypt were now themselves dead. All of a sudden, that Lord, the one who comforted him by saying, don't worry, if you have a problem with speaking, I'm going to send Aaron to come and be your voice. You will be like God to him. That very God, it tells us, was about to kill Moses even before he got to Egypt. Now, you should ask the question the same way uh, that I asked the question when I looked at this text. What could Moses have possibly done to provoke this serious of a reaction from God? I mean, verses 24 to 26 record for us what it was that was so, so serious that it almost caused Moses his life and ministry and made his wife a widow. The text is very difficult to understand fully when you look at the Hebrew text. Um, it contains just as many questions when you go to, to really exegete it as it does answer. So I've read a number of commentaries, and they all go in different directions. How I, however, I will say this. This is always, I, whenever I study the word, um, I'll never forget what uh, Pastor Dan Broadwater, Dr. Dan Broadwater always told me. You don't have to tell the people what you don't know. Just tell them what you do know. And there is something in this text that we can uh, fully know. As we look at this, um, it does reveal to us, this text does, the main cause for God's disciplinary action that was averted just in the nick of time. So we can learn that from it. What was the main cause? Why was God so dead serious? Pun intended. So what we're going to see this morning as we look at Exodus 4, 24 to 31, is simply this. Far from receiving special treatment, listen, God's servants need to take his word even more seriously. And that when they do, it not only blesses themselves, but it blesses the whole church of Jesus. That's what we're going to see. God's servants, instead of taking God more lightly because they feel they're special, they're to take him more seriously and his word more seriously. And that when they do, it's not just a blessing to them, but it blesses the whole community of faith. That's what we're going to see in the text this morning. So let's take a look. At each of them in turn, it's just two things we're going to see from the text in particular. 
First of all, God's servants need to take their walk as leaders more seriously, not less seriously. Now, we learn this truth from the very intriguing and strange passage in verses 24 to 26. Now, before we engage in a little bit of a fill-in-the-blanks, read-between-the-lines kind of exegesis, which we do have to do in this text a little bit, let's try to get at the bottom line reason for this particular text, why it's here, and why Moses felt the need to include it. Like, this is, if I'm writing my biography, let me be honest with you, this is something I'm probably not going to bring to your attention. This is something that, well, they don't really need to know. But for some reason, Moses, and more importantly, the Holy Spirit, said, no, this needs to be included in God's account to us in the book of Exodus, in the story of Moses and the Israelites. And so we're going to see, let, let's, let me read the text again so it's fresh in our mind. Verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. So the text lets us know exactly why she said what she said. So what do we know? Okay, let's, let's go with that. If you're going to be a detective, if you can do some investigating, you first have to ask yourself, okay, what are the facts that we do know? Before we get into things that are a little fuzzy, what's the fact? The first fact is the Lord met Moses and was going to kill him. As a fact. Second fact, his wife Zipporah circumcised his son and then touched the foreskin uh, on the feet of Moses. Third thing we know, Zipporah called Moses a bridegroom of blood uh, because of the incident. And then the other thing we know, number four fact, is that it says right in the text, so the Lord left him alone. In other words, the Lord relented, and he did not carry out the sentence of his judgment of killing Moses. So that's, that's the fact. Those are the facts of the case, if I was going to be a detective and I had to bring forth the evidence. So here's what's clear. Let's talk about what's clear just for a few minutes. Zipporah's quick action saved Moses' life. Because that is the only thing that intervened. Her intervention is the thing that stopped the Lord from carrying out his judgment. So what was it that she did? Notice in the text, she circumcised her son. We don't know which one. Moses had and, and Zipporah had two sons. So we're not sure if this was the firstborn or the secondborn. Text doesn't tell us, but certainly um, it was one of the two. So what does that mean? Well, what it means is that for some reason, the text doesn't tell us. That's when we'll get into that in a little bit. For some reason, Moses failed to circumcise his son. We know that's the problem. Now, what's pretty odd about that is that considering the fact that he had faith in the Lord, um, Hebrews 11, verses 24 to 25 say this about Moses' faith before he got to Egypt. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. So in other words, Moses wasn't shy about associating with his people, with God's people. He, he refused to take his privileges of being an Egyptian and said, no, I, these are my people. God's people are my people. I am with them. 
So it wasn't that he didn't get them circumcised because he was afraid to associate with them. So that's that makes it even more puzzling, doesn't it? So then why would he be so lackadaisical about administering the sign of the covenant of grace, the sign God commanded his people to administer to all newborn males to his own son? Now we're going to look at that possibility, a possible scenario in just a moment. I can't give you all the possible scenarios. But first of all, let's see why God uh, made such a big deal about this, why he took it so seriously. Um, one of my few cross-references this morning, uh, turn with me to Genesis 17. We're all going to read a little part of this covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants, um, just for our purposes this morning uh, concerning circumcision the sign of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament, for sure. We're going to look at uh, Genesis 17, beginning in verse 9. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who was eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. That's a very serious thing, to break the covenant. So we saw in this text, in Genesis, that circumcision was the sign of God's covenant of grace with his people. So to, to fail to apply that sign and that seal of God's relationship of grace with his people was to break the covenant. It was to take an extremely solemn sacrament very lightly and as a very small thing, when as in fact it was a huge thing to God. And it should be to us as his covenant partner. Now it only stands a reason. Now we start seeing how this text makes sense. It only stands a reason that the one called to deliver God's word to God's people must himself model obedient faith in this area for the people to whom he ministers. In other words, how can Moses preach the great blessings and responsibilities of God's covenant to God's people, if he doesn't even administer that sign to his own household, to his own son. What the Lord was doing here is he was saying this, far from being easy on you because you're Moses, my chosen servant, I'm going to hold you to an even higher standard. God could not let this serious glaring omission slide, even from Moses. God does not play favorites. Moses has to lead his family in the ways of the Lord if he's going to lead God's family in the ways of the Lord. If he's going to talk about the judgment that's going to fall upon the firstborn of Egypt, 
And Pharaoh's firstborn son, well then, he better very well have his son circumcised with the mark of God's grace and a relationship with the Lord of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When I was preparing to be a church planner, I saw a brief video interview with uh, Pastor Tim Keller from Manhattan. And what he said really stuck with me to this day. I thought of it right away when I was preparing this. He said, there are two basic things you need to be a faithful church planner. He said, the first thing you need is the, the, requisite, uh, the required skills and abilities from God. He said, but then the second thing you need is godliness. And he said, of the two, godliness is more important. It was very convicting. It was a wake-up call. It was a splash of wet, uh, uh, cold water in my face. That yes, I need training. Yes, I need to make sure that I'm studied and, and um, you know, that I have the requisite skills and uh, uh, talents from the Lord that I develop. But more importantly, is that I'm walking with God by faith in godliness, uh, with all the means of grace He gives, and trusting not in my own ability to do it, but in God's work in my life. And that's true of all leaders. So Moses, Moses had unfinished business to, care, to take care of before he could be God's man for God's mission. That's what's going on. That's what's at the heart of this text. What is clear is that he needed to rectify his disobedience and not having his son circumcised. And that gives us, uh, speaks a word of warning and conviction to us all. You know, one of the things that I think is so important for us to understand is, Paul talks about this in Romans as well, is that in a text like this, we see both the goodness and the severity of the Lord. That God is both loving and holy, and they don't contradict. And that there, we need to realize that our God is a consuming fire. He's not, you know, our buddy from next door. He's not our equal. He's not someone to be taken lightly. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We've got to be trusting and obeying the gospel ourselves, to speak in New Covenant terms, if we expect to be used to minister the gospel effectively to others. Now, just a few words. It's not going to take a lot of time at all on this. But about some of the things that are not clear, that maybe kind of read between the lines and fill in some of the planks. Um, the text doesn't explain how did Zipporah know the reason that the Lord was about to kill Moses? How did she know that, that that's, it doesn't tell us? We also don't know why was she the one who intervened and circumcised their son? In other words, why does she circumcise their son immediately and then proceed to call uh, Moses a bridegroom of blood after she performs the procedure? Um, normally, it was the, the, the head of the home, the father, who would perform the rite. Now, let me just give you what I think is the best reasoning, uh, best explanation. This is, at this point, I'm stepping back from thus saith the Lord and giving you my opinion. All right, this is a, uh, I do think uh, there are good reasons to believe this. It seems to me that as we look at the text, Zipporah was not keen on having their son circumcised. Don't forget, Zipporah was a Midianite. 
So she may have some reason that we don't know where she was kind of putting it off and maybe reasoning with her husband about, do we really need to have this done? Um, and instead of, uh, in Moses' part, instead of insisting on obeying the Lord and saying, I'm sorry, this is one thing we can't cut corners on. The Lord called us to circumcise um, our son, and he is going to be circumcised. Instead of doing that, because, hey, look, husbands, we all know, sometimes uh, hope in my marriage, thank God, it's been very rare where I would have to make such a decision uh, without finally uh, working it through with my wife. But we realize when we say that, we're going to be punished, so to speak. We realize that, um, you know, we're going to have to face the backlash of, 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 in this case, the wife not being happy with the husband doing something um, that she didn't agree with. In this case, though, it was the case of keeping God's covenant. So this was an area where whoever loves husband or wife more than me is not worthy of me. And so this was a very serious issue that Moses put off. And so when God comes to discipline Moses for not taking care of it, notice Zipporah springs into action. And she takes care of it. And then I believe in a bit of frustration, she says, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. There are some commentators that said, how beautiful. How She was just saying such a, you know, I don't think this is beauty at all. I think she was saying, man, you're a, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. And the text said in particular that it had to do with the circumcision. And I think it's very clear to, to me, it's clear. Again, I'm open to uh, disagreements in this area. But we have an instance of the head of the home not living up to his responsibilities. And we have an instance of the one who's called to submit to his headship doing what should have been done a long time ago and her recognizing, hey, I should have said yes to this. That's what I think. Well, getting back to what we do know, thanks for bearing with me on some of those suppositions. Uh, it seems pretty clear that at this point, Zipporah, Zipporah and both of her sons no longer join Moses on the journey to Egypt, but actually go back to Midian. Now, perhaps they did so so that the boy's circumcision could heal. We don't know all the reasons why. But I'll tell you why I believe that's the case, and many other commentators point this out as well. Because in the very next passage, which we're going to talk about briefly in a moment, um, Zipporah and the boys aren't there anymore. Moses goes to meet Aaron. He's alone with Aaron. His wife and children aren't there. As a matter of fact, Zipporah is not mentioned again in Exodus until Exodus 18. And it's, it's when, the, the text tells us, when Jethro comes to visit Moses to see um, all that the Lord had done, he takes um, Zipporah and their sons with him. So obviously, by chapter 18, Zipporah is back in Midian. So one last thing I want to mention before we go to the second thing we see in this text. Uh, notice something important. I think it's important when I come to a close of this text, I'm going to bring it back up. Notice the humility of Moses here. He has included all of his flubs, all of his failures, all of his sins. He doesn't paint a picture of a spotless superhero. He's not Kal-El. He's not Superman who comes and and he's you know the righteous guy and always doing the right thing. Uh, instead, he's a deeply flawed person who stood, uh, indeed, he stood in need of the grace of God for forgiveness. And he stood in need of the grace of God in order to carry out the mission that God called him to, the high and holy calling, just like we do as well. And 
So that, that what's important here is that we see his with his failure to circumcise his son now rectified, Moses can now carry on the mission God has called him to and make his way over to the mountain of God in order to meet with his brother Aaron. And that's the second and last thing I want to point out, that God blesses his people through his obedient servants. In other words, his servants who walk by faith, uh, who trust and obey, despite their flaws and their sins and their weaknesses, they trust the Lord. So notice in the text, that I'm going to summarize it for us, the Lord tells Aaron to go meet Moses. They have a warm reunion. Um, Aaron gives him a kiss on the cheek. Uh, Moses recounts everything God told him to say and all the miraculous signs he commanded him to per perform. Uh, Aaron obviously believes him. And then they gather all the elders of Israel and they repeated everything to them. Uh, Aaron did because uh, Moses spoke to Aaron just like God said would happen. And then Aaron spoke it to the people. And then it seems in the text that Aaron performed the signs before the people. And it says, lo and behold, excuse me for one moment, they believed. And that's important to see because all of Moses' fears about them not listening and not believing, um, it was probably even still a little shocking to Moses that the, the elders believed. Excuse me. Although we'll see later how far that belief went. <laughs> but at least initially, he's pleasantly surprised. But then, then uh, um, Moses adds this last comment in verse 31 through the Holy Spirit. And this is what we're going to park on for the remainder of our time. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Now what you have to understand about the Israelites at this time, there was no new word of the Lord for years, probably hundreds of years. And here they were in a foreign land under slavery, in misery. And so Moses, Moses and Aaron's message from the Lord, along with the demonstration of his mighty power, obviously moved them deeply. But notice what moved them so deeply uh, that they bowed down and worshipped. It wasn't merely the power of the Lord, which certainly did uh, encourage them. But notice what it says when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery. What was their response? They bowed down and worshipped. Now sometimes, I remember an old saint in my life, she would always say, the Lord knows, dear, the Lord knows. And sometimes you hear those sentences, you think of like the old southern ladies, you know, will say things just by rote or by habit. But I don't believe this saint meant it that way. I think what she was saying is a very profound thing. God knows your suffering. Or he knows the injustice you're living through right now. He's not ignorant of it. He's not ignored it. He may, not, he may let it go on for a while for his good reasons that we don't understand. But he knows. And I know for me, when, when just to know that my God knows, my Savior knows my heart. He knows my struggles. He knows my suffering. He knows the things I'm dealing with. He's not ignorant of these things. He's, he, he, he's not blocking them out or ignoring them. That gives me great comfort. It gives me great assurance of his love. How comforting it is to know that God is aware of our suffering. 
that he knows our misery, that he doesn't overlook our pain. Instead, he is deeply concerned about his people. Now, in their case, um, in this text, it was the promise of deliverance from physical slavery and oppression in Egypt. What we have to understand is that the God who showed his concern and care for his people by sending his servant to tell the tyrant Pharaoh to let his people go is the same God who came to deliver his people through his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he came to deliver us from something even more important. And even as the Old Testament saints would later testify to us, he came to save us from the tyranny of sin and of death and of hell. Those are the three things that still keep men and women and children in bondage today. And Jesus the Christ is the only one who could break those chains. What should be our response? You know, I remember when I was learning how to public uh, do public speaking. And that's why I should flub it right there. Um, but one of the things they told us is that you always have to have some action that you want your audience, you know, what do you want your audience to do? Well, actually in a text like this, what is, what is the response? Worship. And it is enough. Mary put it this way, the mother, human mother of Jesus, when she was told that she would bear the Savior in Luke Chapter 1, I believe it is, 54 and 55. She simply says this. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. See, the more you study the scriptures and the more you learn about the great faith and doings of God's choicest servants like Abraham, like Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Moses, Aaron, and then we're going to see Miriam, the more it becomes crystal clear that even they needed a Savior desperately. Without the atoning blood of the Passover lamb, they would have been lost forever. The Passover lamb is Jesus the Christ. Animals, could, animal, The blood of animals could never atone for sin. They were all symbolic. They all pointed ahead to the one who would be able to accomplish what no one else could. Think about it. Up to Exodus 5, so far the mighty Moses isn't looking so mighty. Not really looking perfect. And I believe one of the reasons Moses includes this, the, the most embarrassing moments of his life, is to show us that he's no savior but the one who called him is. We're going to see this throughout, not only Exodus, but the rest of the Pentateuch. Let me see it there. The one who spoke to him in the burning bush, from the burning bush, the one who almost took his life for his disobedience and not honoring him as holy, not honoring the covenant of grace, the one who remembered his people's misery and causes them to bow down and worship, is the same one, listen, who would not be spared from the judgment of death. Right? Moses was spared. The Lord Jesus would not be spared. He would take the full brunt of the punishment that his people's sins deserve. That means you, and that means me. 
He is the great I am. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that we worship and adore this Christmas season and throughout all year, the rest of the year. So what we're going to do in our response right now is let's bow down. Let's worship him in faith and in holy reverence this morning. We're going to sing a song that we uh, I introduced to some of you. Some of us have sung it before um, called Bow Down and Worship Him because that's all our response should be. Grab the guitar. Let's take our last few moments here to try to get quiet in the house. Try to put our focus on the God who saves. And who even disciplines because he loves us too much to let us go our own way. Oh, 
and